name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. It was said that one day, Satan called together all of his emissaries with a game plan. How can we ruin the souls of the children of men? He tasked them to come forward with their best ideas so he could send them out. One came forward and said, I will go. Satan said, what will you do to ruin the souls of men? His reply, I'll tell them there is no heaven. Satan said, that won't work. They are made in the image of God. They understand there is good and evil and that um, good ultimately triumphs. You may not go. Another came forward and said, I'll go. And he said, well, what will you tell the children of men? And this one replied, I'll tell them there is no hell. Satan said once more, that won't work. While they're also made in the image of God and they understand good and evil, they know that evil will ultimately be dealt with and therefore you may not go. One came forward with a sly smirk and said, I'll go. And Satan said, well, what will you tell the children of men? And he said, I'll tell them there is no hurry. And with a smile on his face, Satan said, go forth. My friends, the biggest deceit that we buy into is the idea that there is no hurry in this life. St. Augustine, that towering theologian down through the ages, said of himself in his confessions that there was a season where he prayed he would be made holy, but not yet. He was honest about it. And I think for most of us, we recognize that we need to square up with what it means to walk as children of the light as we sing at every baptism, but we delay that at times. And so this morning, actually, um, in Acts 9, in a, in a familiar passage that we know that's often held up as the quintessential conversion story, the conversion of Saul, we often see that as what a full, complete conversion looks like, and rightly so. But we're all on a journey, and I believe that therein are actually some lessons for us about self-deceit. Church used to teach a lot about self-deceit. Um, it's gotten away from that. I think because of the value of authenticity, it's taken a back seat. And so I'd like to pull forward this theme of deception, deception that we do of ourselves. Um, as we look at this passage together, and as we name these things, then we can address these things with God's help and by God's grace. So if you look with me in Acts chapter 9, let's walk through a rather familiar passage together this morning. Either in your Bible, it's on the screens, but it'll be a bit smaller, I apologize. We're going to cover some ground. In verse 1, we, we know this passage well, right? We know Saul. Saul is um, a, an up-and-comer in the school of the Pharisees. Saul is zealous. He's passionate about uh, the faith. Saul, a few chapters prior, is seen consenting to the stoning of, C of Stephen. He wants to do God's work, and that is what he believes he's doing. And he's actually so zealous about it that he's going to press out beyond the bounds of Jerusalem into surrounding cities to chase down these people that are called part of the way, not yet being called Christians, to root them out so that God's work may prevail. So after getting his marching orders, off he goes, and then we know the rest of the story. There's this moment, this beautiful moment, where he comes face to face with our Lord Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And as he does so, um, he's convicted, 
He's on his knees. He has this, this moment where he audibly hears God's voice. And as he stands up, we read there in verse 6 that he's given a choice. Rise and enter the city, and then when you arrive, you'll be told what you will do. And so he's left. What do I do with this encounter? Now, I'd like to suggest that we all have moments where the gospel grabs hold of us. They may not be that profound, but they are profound, and we know what they are. It could be, for instance, when missionaries visit uh, churches like ours, and they talk about their heart to go and work and reach the lost, um, and they ask for support in prayer and financial support, and we, we kind of feel that tug. Maybe, maybe we, should, we should respond. It may be um, doing an annual stewardship drive when someone from the congregation tells about growing in the grace of giving, and that kind of grips us, and we're kind of wrestling with that. It could be when um, we hear about the call to help with VBS, as you did last week, or, or Good News Club, and we think, you know, we should really be about that, and I, I know I should probably um, help in some way. Um, or, or the call to be a part of Bible study, and we think, you know, I really do need to be more in God's Word. There are these moments where God grips us, the gospel grips us just as it did Paul, in our own way. And we have a choice right there. What do we do with that? And I would venture to say that probably more often than we'd like to admit, we don't actually do something with it, but we don't do something with it in the way that we want to acknowledge. Most of us wouldn't say, you know, I know I should support missionaries, but I'm just not going to do that. Most of us, I hope, wouldn't say, I know I need to be in God's word, but I'm not going to do that. Most of us wouldn't say, I know I should contribute to the work of the saints, but I'm just not going to do that. What we do is much more subtle. It's self-deceit. In fact, what we do um, is this. We first lesson, it's a big one to kind of call out right off the bat, is this. We procrastinate. Procrastination is like the bedrock of self-deceit. Because if we can do this, one Christian author put it this way, um, if we can lessen the urgency, then even our strongest moral beliefs will diminish or even disappear. So this is the way we get around this. We've been there. I'm not pointing fingers. I've been there too, right? So when we hear the call to give, we say, you know, I know I should, but, you know, my gift really won't matter that much. I don't have that much to offer. Surely in a congregation this size, it'll get taken care of. Or, you know, I'll, I'll take this home and I'll think about it, and then I'll bring it back in a couple weeks, and then I'll respond. Or, um, I, I know I should sign up to help out with Bible study or to join Bible study, but I'm just so busy. I mean, God understands. It's just such a busy season. And when it slows down, then I'll do it. And the months roll by. Or, we know others will help out and fill roles, even though I maybe should get in the practice of serving. There, there's plenty of other people that can jump in. We do these subtle ways to lessen the urgency because here's the reality. If we confront ourselves with the fact that I'm not going to do it, we have to square up and align ourselves with, am I really just not going to do what the gospel tells me to do? And none of us really will do that. So we find these little subtle workarounds. And that's kind of how we prolong and procrastinate growth in the likeness of Jesus. And, and it's huge that we get this, because this becomes the bedrock for every other thing that we do. So we shouldn't miss that, that it's kind of the St. Augustine. I want to be made holy, but not yet. And so we find the ways to stay in the not yet long enough that the urgency decreases, and there we don't have to necessarily square up with it. Now, here's where that leads us back in verse 7, I believe. 
Yes. So Paul has a choice. Paul has to decide, what do I do with this moment? I've had this encounter with God. I'm called to go to Damascus, and there I'll find out what awaits me. He can choose to go to Damascus. He can choose to hightail it back to Jerusalem. He's got a choice. Now, to aid in Paul's urgency, he's blind, and his friends have heard an audible voice. So that, that probably ups his urgency a bit to go and figure out what this thing is. If for no other reason than he wants to try to hope, he's, he's astute enough to know that there's something going on there. Paul's spiritual blindness is now manifest in physical blindness as he recognizes that what he thought he was doing for God, namely standing with God, is actually standing in opposition to what God is doing in Jesus Christ. And so he, he has to square up to that, and he rises as we see. Um, his friends lead him into Damascus. And then there's a line in there in verse 9 that we often kind of overlook as we jump to the resolution of the story. He never I ate nor drank for three days. He fasted. There's a spiritual principle there. He emptied himself, recognizing that as he goes, he's astute enough to know that God's somewhere in this. And in order to encounter God... He's going to empty himself of his own desires, his own expectations, and be ready for what God has for him next. He chooses not to persist, to persist in his own wisdom, his own modes of operation, his own understanding, but, but he ceases and desists so that he can be ready for what God has for him next. Now, I think therein is, is a valuable point that we often miss. The key to remaining in something when we procrastinate is we're really going to persist in it. We don't often like to acknowledge that we persist in things, either in omission, doing, not doing the things that we know we should do, or in commission, namely that we commit those things that we know we should not do. At some point, there has to be a point where we say we won't persist in that any further, namely our negligence or our, our intentional um, deviations from what God has called us to do in Jesus Christ. I think the key to getting over the persisting step is Paul's fasting. And we often don't think about it. We often in this life, we have limited resources, we have limited hours in the day, we have limited um, uh, time, and, and we have to recognize that we fast in order to create pockets whereby we can take on something new. Um, I must fast in some point in my day, in my calendar, to make time for something else. I mean, most of you have scheduled, you know, almost 24 hours out of the day. If we could eke a little bit more out, we would. Um, so I have to fast from whatever that is. Maybe it's a physical fast at lunch to make time for God's Word. Maybe it's a fast from, um, you know, my, my normal routine of letting my hair down at the end of the day so I have time to go and be in God's Word. Um, maybe I have to fast from the way I spend so I can return to God what He is due um, maybe I have to fast from the, the times that I um, jump in to leisure so that I can be about serving God. It's about fasting. We, we fast in some ways so that we can create pockets whereby we can be about what God has called us to do. And then the resolution, or actually the, the good news perhaps, is this. It's, it's, it's at the end of this reading for us in verse 17. 
Um, I'm skipping over the middle portion mainly because Ananias there um, is intentionally kind of working through this on his own, right? You know, God shows up to him and says, hey, Ananias, I want you to go talk to Saul. Um, he procrastinates. Surely there's someone else that can go and do this. Um, no, there's not. It's you. Um, are you sure you know who he is? Yes, I'm God. I know who he is. You're going to go pray for him. Okay. And then here we arrive. That's the, that's the paraphrasing of what just happened there. So then Ananias departs and goes and prays for um, Brother Saul, as he calls him. That's a pretty big shift he's had to make mentally. This is the guy coming with orders to take you away. And he accepts that sermon for a whole other day and prays for Saul. And as he does, Saul, who's now depleted from his fast, is now filled up by the Holy Spirit. And when he's filled up by the Holy Spirit, now for the first time, he can see clearly, spiritually, but now physically as well. And so then we say, we see at the end of the reading, he takes food and drink, he's strengthened, and then he joins the disciples at Damascus, and off we go. Paul's conversion in this moment is now complete. But let's not miss this. Paul's conversion is complete, but his journey has just begun. In fact, the rest of Acts tells us about Paul's journey quite literally. The rest of the New Testament gives us letters of Paul's journey. And Paul's journey, like our journey, is indeed a process. And I think it's worth acknowledging that. We look at these towering figures and we think, you know, it's just easy to prop up someone like Paul. But Paul's process was one that we often miss. It's nuanced in his letters. He has this thorn in his side. We don't know what it is. He's wrestling with something internally the rest of his life that he has to square up to. He wrestles externally with the principalities and powers of the age who stone him, who throw him in prison, who cast him out of towns. Um, he lands at the end of his life in a prison where, in the face of despair, he has to remember that his ultimate end is going to be right where he began, namely meeting the end that he was consenting to in Stephen as he too will lose his life for Jesus. He has to be reconciled to John Mark, his friend, who then they have a riff and, and, and take a time away and has to, it's a process. It's a process. Our conversion is a process. We have these moments where, yes, we square up to Jesus and we turn to him in the waters of baptism, but the rest of the journey of life is not one of procrastinating until Jesus returns, but is a process whereby we are called to grow in the likeness of Jesus, the character of Jesus. So what does that look like? What does that look like? I believe when we recognize that a process is at work, we don't let ourselves off the hook and say, I've got time. But we recognize that we must make an action plan, and it may take time, but the plan must be there. If I'm going to work on growing in the grace of giving, it may take me years to get to a biblical tithe of 10%. Maybe I have to shave 1% here and there. If I'm going to make time to serve two hours a week um, on behalf of the Lord and the church, I may have to make pivots in my week. And it may be small incremental things that I have to do. I'm going to make Bible study a regular rhythm every single week. I may have to fast from certain things in pockets and kind of build up to the two-hour window on a Tuesday night or so. It takes time, but the process is one whereby we grow in holiness of life. So as we're in Easter season, I'm aware there's a pivot that happens liturgically here, and it's good, but it's also dangerous. In Lent, we fast. We fast for 40 days. Most of us cold turkey quit something. And if you've quit something you really like, you're really looking forward to Easter. So if you gave up wine or you gave up, um, you know, your, your favorite binge TV show, Easter goes from feasting, um, and we, we jump into that with both feet. 
The challenge is that we often don't get back to recognizing there's a process. How do we build in times of fast regularly so that we may continue to grow in the likeness of Jesus? That's the goal. And the rhythms of the church remind us there's appropriate times and seasons for everything. But we must recognize that as we work through those, it doesn't mean we cast one off to take one on, but it's a continual work of the heart that we must do in cooperation with the Holy Spirit. So as we embark a little deeper into Eastertide, I'd just lay this before you, these lessons on Damascus Road about self-deception, so that we don't get lost in this lessened urgency. In fact, whatever it is that perhaps is in your mind that's making you a little squirmish this morning, um, perhaps wrestle that down. Don't just shelve it and then say, I'll deal with it later. Don't procrastinate. Um, put, put a plan in place. Talk to a trusted friend. Come see one of us, Greg or I or others. Um, that's what the church is for, accountability and growth. And then as we do that, we take measurable steps. Whatever that, maybe a lot of things pop up. Just go with something, start small. Start small and start somewhere. If we don't, we always just kind of get lost in this loop of we'll get there one day. Well, you will when you see Jesus face to face, but let's let that process bring us more nearer to his presence daily, and then it reforms the way we, we live and work in the world daily. So as we move into this Easter season, may we heed these warnings of Damascus and deception, and may we grow more fully in the likeness of Jesus for his sake and for his glory. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.